Do not be seated. Um, we are going to uh, turn to our text, and I'm going to go ahead and start to read it here in just a moment. Uh, Luke is our text this morning, chapter 8. This is going to be our last week in uh, the study of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to at least hit it for now, a pause. And uh, this summer, I will uh, be spending time uh, looking at the book of Philippians, uh, the letter of Philippians. So uh, just to, to, by way of anticipation, uh, we're going to uh, sum up chapter 8 of Luke. I've said it from the beginning, Luke is not uh, a merely a biographer. Yes, he's a researcher. Yes, he's a historian, but he's a messenger. And he has a good news message for us about the person of Jesus. Uh, I might want to add, he's also not a sci-fi author, uh, but you might doubt that today as we read our text, uh, just given the nature of it. You know, a lot of people might uh, say, I've heard it said, and maybe you today even think this from time to time yourself, that the Bible is not relevant to my life. Uh, that may be you, but you at least cannot say it is boring, okay? And here's why. Listen to this. This is God's Word, Luke 8. We're going to begin in verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, this is Jesus, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and they, sa- they sailed and fell asleep and a windstorm came down in the lake and they were filling up the, uh, with water and they were in danger and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and they, were, they marveled saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and waters and they obey him? And they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothing, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For for many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep embankment to the lake and drowned. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to their city and their country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people surrounding in the country of the Gerasenes asked him, Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat, and he returned. The man with whom the demons had gone begged him that he might go with him, or be with him. But Jesus sent him on his way, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And, the, and there came a man, Jarius, who was a ruler at the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to the house. For he had, only, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. 
And Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though he had spent all her living on physicians, her, her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is this that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, upon hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, for she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, James, and John, and the father of the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand and calling saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, that would naturally elicit from, uh, from any of us uh, a sense of, of, of awe and wonder. And now you're probably wondering, how on earth is Pastor going to cover all of that? Um, well, we're going to find out, uh, me included. So let's ask for God's help. We do ask God right now, we pray for your help, your aid, that you would make uh, by the power of your spirit, your word alive to us and us to alive to Christ. To see uh, your son, forgive us, Lord, even uh, now our sins, uh, for they are many, especially the one who has to preach. So help me in Jesus name. Amen. If you were to look at uh, these stories, these persons and parties and details unfolding, if you were uh, to try to find, if it were on a topographical map, let's say, you know, an overview, if you were to try to find, uh, you know, two rivers, so to speak, uh, that flow through this, two threads that go through all of this as something of, of commonality, I think that they would be this, anxiety and authority. And I'll explain uh, more of, of what exactly I mean by that. Um, but uh, before I, I say that, um, I, I would say what it is that causes those rivers to be accentuated or to be uh, in focus is uh, the fact that there are storms. That there are storms that rise up and they are what bring to focus and to light the flowing of these two rivers. And again, I'll explain more of what I mean. Even the fact that I said storms, even though there's really only one storm that's there on the Sea of Galilee in our text, really there are a number of storms. And let me just go back and kind of trace through ever so briefly the obvious terror in verse 23 of water coming into the boat in the middle of this uh, rather large Sea of Galilee at night. Then consider the fact that uh, for this man in verse 27 who's demon-possessed, that's been a storm that's haunted him for many years. It's isolated him. Uh, it's, it's physically at times uh, hurt him. Verse 34, there's, of course, the shock and the, the worry on the herdsman's face when they find out that 
you know, that all of their pigs, their livestock, their livelihood is floating on the lake, dead. You know, naturally, that would be pretty alarming uh, for them. That's a storm. Verse 43, this woman who finds uh, chronic bleeding in her life, it's uh, completely racked uh, her health. This woman uh, is now healed, but nevertheless, at the time she's had a storm, verse 49, uh, Jarius finds out that it's, uh, it's too late, you know, that this, this, the storm has is, is come and it, it's too late. His daughter, his 12-year-old child is dead. So uh, what is all of this except the, the, the obvious reason for all of these anxious fears, the natural reason for these anx- anxious fears? But then what about the authority that we see uh, flowing through the thread of authority, well, that leads to one of my uh, questions, the first of, when, of which is, what uh, do these storms reveal about Jesus? What do these storms reveal about Jesus? Uh, we'll look at that before we journey into the question, what do the storms reveal about us? So, first of all, what do we know uh, about Jesus that's revealed because of these storms? We know that anywhere uh, a king reigns, a king has authority or a queen has authority. But it's only to the extent of where that kingdom extends outward to. What realms of the, is their kingdom? Does that make sense? But for Jesus here, his kingdom is so far reaching beyond what we can imagine. And so subsequently his authority is so vast because his kingdom is so vast. And I'll just highlight a few. The first and obvious one is, is that he demonstrates, it reveals that Jesus has authority over the natural realm, that even here the waves and the wind obey him. You can imagine what it was like for them, the disciples. They're very experienced. They know the sea. The Gospel of of Mark in his account says that it was evening, so it's dark. And then the boat, it's it's recorded here by Luke uh, in verse 23, is taking on water. So naturally they're afraid. And then here we have Jesus, uh, as I so often refer to him, the God-man, uh, displaying and illustrating just that. His, his humanity, first of all, the fact that he is exhausted, physically needing rest, and he can sleep through a storm in, in a boat. So he's there. But then you see Jesus' divinity on display as well because he can stand and simply with the power of his word can, can call forth a calmness. What a remarkable thing. Just immediately, poof, the wind and the waves and everything is, is calm. So he has authority over the natural realm. And of course, Jesus here displays the authority over the spiritual realm as well because he shows compassion, right? He shows this man who's been, who's been tormented by demons for so long, he just commands these demons to, to leave and to depart this man. And then, of course, Jesus has authority over the, the physical realm, when His very presence and His very Word brings healing to a woman who has been chronically bleeding. And then, of course, over the physical realm, because this, this, this girl who is diseased and, and ill, gravely ill, then is deceased, that He brings resurrection power to her. This is a king whose authoritative power, as, as others have summarized it, just in capturing this whole, you know, just to summarize this whole passage, what does He have authority over? He has authority over what? Everything and everyone. Danger, demons, disease, even death. But it wasn't just for the sake of showing forth a a, a magic 
display, right? It wasn't just that he could, he could grab an audience's attention by doing these things. No, the fact that he's doing these particular miracles, yes, it testifies to his authority. Yes, it testifies to his great strength, but also to his heart. That he, that he has mercy on these people in their time of, of trouble and the, the storms that have racked their lives. What do we learn? I mean, we, we learn that Jesus believes that a, a human soul is of greater value than thousands upon thousands of swine. <laughs> I mean, that's their final end anyway. But, but Jesus affirms the, the dignity and the worth of humanity. Furthermore, he is, is just showing that he has every capacity to restore human peace and to, to cleanse people. Like this woman who would have been unclean and ostracized. This man who would have been out of his mind and and, uh, and, and, and secluded to the caves and the tombs. So, so Jesus has all of this. The storms show what His power can do and what is both His mercy and His might and His character. Now, the, the second question that I want to spend more time on is, what do the storms reveal about us? About humans? Well, we have plenty of reasons to be afraid. <laughs> Sorry, this is not a counseling session, Okay. You have a lot of reasons to be afraid. In fact, if you don't have fear operative, then you're not healthy. I mean, fear is part of the human condition that God has, you know, has equipped all of us with so that we know uh, how to respond from time to time. When, when fear comes, there, there's a, physiologically something that happens within us that we even can move quickly from danger and threats, right? We know this. If you don't have fear, you put yourself at great risk. And, and, then, and then to add to that, we're not merely biological mammals. We, we are human beings made in the image of God. And we, we love things. And we love people. And we have relationships. And so it's natural that Jarius here, this ruler, is gravely afraid that his daughter might perish. It's his 12-year-old daughter. Understandably, anyone would assume this, of course, that he is gravely afraid. The storms reveal, though, in this account and in, in real life, that there is both faith and unbelief. It has a way, storms that come into our life, regardless of what shape they take, have a way of revealing whether we have and where we have and what with, with whom and with what we have trust in. The disciples are fearful and they look to Jesus, who in the boat is not laughing, but he's sleeping. <laughs> And, uh, and they give him this, this rather sharp question. It's, you know, they, they demand of him something, and, and Mark, again, his gospel says this way. They look at him, and they say, Do you not care for us? They wake him up. Master, Master, Luke records, we're perishing, we're perishing, which is in essence to say what we're assuming, which is what Mark recorded, they said. Don't you care? We're dying. But if we're honest, we can identify. In some measure, because our worlds are often rocked with storms, some of the storms we didn't see coming, some of them, some of them were storms of our own making. And so we, we say either in rage or in anxiety or anger or confusion or unbelief or doubt or any number of things, we say, where are you, God? Do you not care about me? That's a statement when it's, when it's phrased that way. Of course, not a, a real question. Do you care 
about me and my circumstance, God. This past week, Pastor Matt Owens and I were talking. talking. He was trying to recall a, a Sinclair Ferguson quote. And this is, this is the best of his recollection. It's so well put. In our perception, God's power and love seem incompatible with the difficult trials of our lives. And so it's easy and natural to believe that poisonous whisper that comes in saying, God doesn't really care. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe that has crossed your mind more than once, maybe even this week. And I want to I remind you, every one of you, regardless, that God does indeed care. Now, of course, sometimes the things that we're, we are, are longing for, the things that we are grieving have lost, the things that we are anxious about, the, the restoration, the, the healing, or the reunion is not on this side of glory. But it's coming. And it means all the more that even if the healing, let's say that's the the matter that we're concerned with, doesn't come, hope can. And hope does. God recognizes, I mean, recognizing for us even, that God in His infinite, sovereign wisdom, I want you to think about this, that God in His wisdom and care sometimes does not take us around the storm. Sometimes he brings us to the storm, in the storm, and through the storm. Some of you are nodding your heads. I'm glad to see that. That's, that's the Presbyterian way of saying amen. But, um, <laughs> but you're with me, right? You're with me. Some of you have been through these storms, some more than others. Sometimes we're in a storm of our own making, but even so often, even then, being obedient to the Lord, we face suffering and embarrassment, discomfort and trials. But that's not what makes us unique. What makes us unique as followers of Christ by faith is that we place our ultimate trust. And this, this should be the overall pattern of our response. It's Job, right? If you, if you read Job, tw- uh, Job chapter 2, verse 9 and 10... God allows all of this testing. He's lost all of his property. He's uh, developed sores on his body. And then he has this nagging wife who comes to him. And she says, curse God and die. But he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive, from, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, it's recorded, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, whether it's the disciples or the, the, the demoniac or the, or the woman or, or, or Jarius, it's life and death for them. Okay? This, this, is, this, is, not, this is not worry about water in your basement. This is, this is true life and death, water in the boat. And you have, to, you have to, regardless of how weak their faith may be, and even under question as Jesus offers, nevertheless, you've got to credit them with this. Nonetheless, they're going to the right source. Uh, Jesus, Master, please wake up. Jesus, let me just touch your, your garment. Jesus, please come to my house, my daughter. Jesus, are you with me? Yes? 
They need something. And we need things. And they need assurance. And we need assurance that God is love and devoted to them. But He does look to them, Jesus in verse 25 in our text, and says, where is your faith? And I don't really know whether that's a rebuke or not. But then when he looks at Jarius, the man who's lost his 12-year-old daughter, so he thinks, is dead, he says, do, do not be afraid. And I don't think that that's a rebuke. It's there to comfort him. What is revealed in, of us in the storms, our priorities, our true source of hope is revealed. If you belong to God, it has a way of showing us He has a way. As we belong to Him as sons and daughters, He has a, a way, if we wait upon the Lord, that He shows up in unique ways. Even to surprise us of His mercy and might. Again, it's very natural that they are afraid. Of course, some fears are more natural or less natural in our own estimation, in our own based upon our own disposition, our own upbringing, our own, you know, a variety of different factors uh, shape your fears and mine. Many people have acrophobia, the fear of heights. I don't. At all. And then I became a dad. And I'm not worried for me, but when I see my kids around heights, I'm telling you, we went to the Grand Canyon like four years ago. We visited family, drove up to the Grand Canyon. It's all you know, like it's like super guarded and gated until you hit the trail that goes down. It's a long trail. It's a narrow trail. It's a trail with very little margin of error. And when my children are walking down this trail, it's about the closest thing to a panic attack I've ever physiologically had in my life. I I, I can't watch it. I I I, I do I even do irrational things in the midst of that fear. That came to mind because a few weeks ago I had a dream. I don't really have uh, a recollection of a lot of my dreams. Um, but I had a dream, and I woke up in the morning, and I couldn't let it go. It just kind of haunted me. And it was a dream that I was on, not that trail, but a similar trail. And uh, one of my children uh, stepped off the edge. And it was not one that you recover from. I didn't even look over the edge in the dream. I just laid down because I wanted to die. All I could think of is I've got to die now because I can't live with the sorrow. I can't live with the grief. That was so vivid. It seemed so real in my dream. What do you fear? Well, research this and you'll find a list of common fears. There's glossophobia, the fear of what? Public speaking. Acrophobia, I just highlighted, of course, a very common one, the fear of heights. Well, then there's claustrophobia, the, 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 the fear of tight, enclosed spaces. There's hemophobia, the fear of blood. There's pathophobia, the fear of disease, which has been pretty rampant in the last year and a half, sadly enough. I don't mean that as a joke. There's cholerophobia which everybody pretty much has because it's the fear of clowns. Uh, that was a joke. Um, so too, have you also heard of, uh, what, what's, what's the name of it? It's uh, porcophobia. Yeah, it's the fear of bacon. No, that's not, that's not real because no one has that. That would be delicious phobia. 
Here's the common denominator that I want to highlight. And, and I don't mean the, the, the fear that, that flows through this. The common denominator that I want to highlight, and it's not the fear of the circumstances that they face in these different accounts and stories. The, what I want to highlight is not the fear of the circumstance or the possible outcomes. It's their relationship to Jesus and the fear that is there. And that's the kind of fear that is xenophobic fear. And I, in a particular form, and I, when I say xenophobia... To be xenophobic is to be fearful of something that is, that is other or strange or a foreigner. But really what it is in, in its form is fear of the unknown. A fear of the unknown because whether it's, whether it's the disciples in the boat or the looking out over the water or whether it's the herdsmen looking out over the water at their pigs... They have just encountered a force. They have just encountered this strange, unknown force in Jesus. And how did they respond in fear to Jesus? Well, it's different. So let's look at it. For the disciples, the fear of death is eclipsed. You know, briefly, they have, yes, indeed, fear, doubt. Do you not care for us? But we know that in the end, what does it record for us? Luke says that they look, and, the, and it says, verse 25, they were afraid, but they also marveled, saying to one another, who is this man? And we know it spills over into worship, and to the degree to which they had doubts, it all turned to faith, because Peter was one of them there. He's the one who goes on later in 1 Peter 5, 7 to say, cast all of your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. But, so they, they cling to Jesus. They, they, they fall at His feet. They're in, they're in reverence and awe and worship, fear of God. But if you look at verse oh, 35, somewhere around there, the herdsmen, when they see this, when the people of the town see what Jesus has done, When they saw this man, look at verse 35. They saw the man who was the demoniac, this, this, this cast away, cast off, you know, crazy man. When they see him in his right mind, it says they were delighted that the demonized man was free, they, that, that he had been healed, and they worshipped Jesus and brought all their sick to him. That's not what it said. What it said is, what happened, they said to Jesus... You need to leave now. You need to leave and get away from here. Jesus, we don't know what you want or what you're about, and we don't care. What we do know is you are bad for business. That's our livelihood. Instead of caring about the divine and and, and yielding and and laying themselves in worship before him, they're worried about the money. So you need to leave now. We don't want, we don't, who cares about your authority? We've got our economy and we want our lives free without the interruption of your holiness. We don't like you because we don't understand your power and we can't control you. And my friends, that would be us too. 
that would be us too. If it weren't for the Spirit of God who has graciously made us alive to Christ, who has opened the eyes of our hearts and granted us, even if so, a very tiny mustard seed of faith. They say, depart. Well, look at verse 37. They say, depart. Because verse 37 says they were seized with fear. And notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, oh, oh, oh so, so, so sorry, you misunderstood me. I'm, I'm here on good terms. Please accept me. I'll make it right. It's all good. He says, he turned around and he got in the boat. Friends, if people ask Jesus just to leave them alone, the scary thing is he's likely to do it. Let me give us briefly three takeaways. We could and should be afraid of death and evil. Those are formidable enemies. But we should fear God more. And if we do that, as counterintuitive as this sounds, it will bring us more peace to be aligned with the eternal truth. It will free us as well from other forms of fear, like, for instance, the fear of rejection. And those types of fears need to be displaced. And it's only the fear of God and the knowledge of His love that will allow me to press forward past the fear of rejection, because I have that in my life. So, fear, but fear God more. And then the next thing I would say is, we desperately need Jesus' mercy and might. And that would, that would call us forth in prayer, because if you see the man who's the demoniac, he pleads. He, verse 28, you see it's recorded, he begs with Jesus to do this. And then when it happens for him, it's a beautiful thing, because the testimony of the man is, I want to stay with you. And Jesus says, no, I got, you. I got a mission for you. No one's going to believe it. You go back and you testify of who I am. And he does. He can't help but go and spread. And you can't either tell, tell, God what, tell others what God has done with your life and with your fears. Last thing I would say, storms of suffering and storms of trial have a way of exposing our unbelief and showing us at the same time the all-sufficient grace and power of Jesus. And if you're discouraged, I get it. But don't ask Him to leave. Pray to Him patiently. Walk with Him. He's the King, and His kingdom is vast. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us? Would you protect us from unbelief when it shows up in our anxieties? We know that fear can protect us. We also know that it can isolate us and damage us. Have mercy, Lord. I pray that you would teach us in our need. Would you guide us in whatever trials and storms that you've appointed for us? Uh, for some in our congregation, it's rather long, it's deep. 
There are hurts in family. There are wayward, rebellious children. There are physical trials. There is loneliness. There's grief. There's a lot of question marks about the future. And I pray, God, you'd have mercy. Meet them. Meet us in our need. Lord, would you help us to be good witnesses and ambassadors to go and spread and tell of Christ's love and power? We pray we would do that, even if it were to mean for us scorn that people would laugh at us. Lord, we pray for those who are your followers, fellow brothers and sisters in parts of the world where there is persecution. It's resulted in, in, in poverty and even imprisonment because people are faithful, brothers and sisters, to you. We pray for those, even today, who are meeting in secret small churches. Some are trying to gather others who are in prison in countries like Afghanistan and North Korea, Somalia, Iran, Sudan, Pakistan, China, many other places, Lord. Thank you, God, for the faithfulness of your church, your people, their example. Pray that you'd meet them in their trials, that you would give them strength and mercy. You protect them and cause them to endure. Lord, would you please hear our prayer? Not not because of our words or our intentions or feelings, but on account of Jesus. Even now as we pray in his name and as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father.